What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. How does that make you feel, Adam? Well, I'll be honest with you, Josh. I'm mildly perturbed, and I'm probably (laughs) just going to sit here and accept it. Do you ever get mad as hell? <laughs> Only when you disagree about movies I adore. Okay, so I've seen it. I've seen Adam <laughs> Kempinar at his worst. That's Peter Finch as Howard Beale, the mad prophet of the airwaves in Sidney Lumet's Network, which turns 45 this year. The 10-time Oscar nominee is next up in our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series. Speaking of the Oscars, we've got some thoughts on this year's nominations, which were announced earlier this week. Plus, our 40s noir marathon continues with 1944's Laura. That and more. Go to the window, Adam. Stick your head out and yell. Ahead on film spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. My big question about the Oscars, Josh, when will the Academy wise up and adopt the Film Spotting Madness format? Can we make that happen? Oh, wow. You, you just, you blew my mind there. I think you just fixed the Academy Awards, Adam. There you go. Anything can be fixed with a bracket. Later in the show, we will talk Oscar nominations, though... With Sound of Metal's Paul Racy getting nominated, I definitely don't have much to complain about. We've also got the third film in our 40s noir marathon, Laura, directed by Otto Preminger. And podcast listeners will hear us wax poetic on Film Spotting Madness, best of the 80s. We do have Sweet 16 results. That included a matchup of The Empire Strikes Back versus My Neighbor Totoro, though I know you don't want to talk about that one, Josh, Mm -mm. and we'll share the Elite Eight matchups. Radio listeners, you can get the full show over at filmspotting.net or wherever you get your podcasts. But first, let's get to Network and our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series. In honor of its 45th anniversary, we're spending the year revisiting and reconsidering some of the best films from the great movie year 1976, including four of the titles that were nominated for Best Picture. We've already done two of those nominees, All the President's Men and Scorsese's Taxi Driver, worthwhile revisits in both cases. You can find those reviews at filmspotting.net slash seven from 76. This week is Sidney Lumet's Network. Let's hear a clip. Last night, Howard Beale went on the air and yelled bullshit for two minutes, and I can tell you right now that tonight's show will get a 30 share at least. I think we've lucked into something. Oh, for God's sakes, Diane, are you suggesting we put that lunatic back on the air yelling bullshit? Yes, I think we should put Beale back on the air tonight and keep him on. Did you see the news this morning? Did you see the Times? We've got press coverage on this you couldn't buy for a million dollars. Frank. That dumb show jumped five rating points in one night. Tonight's show has got to be at least 15. We just increased our audience by 20 or 30 million people in one night. Now, you're not going to get something like this dumped in your lap for the rest of your days, and you can't just piss it away. Howard Beale went up there last night and said what every American feels, that he's tired of all the bullshit. He's articulating the popular rage. I want that show, Frank. 
I can turn that show into the biggest smash on television. What do you mean you want that show? It's a new show. It's not your department. Network was released in the fall of 76. It went on to be nominated for 10 Oscars, tied with Rocky for the most nominations. It included Best Picture and Director, winning four. Beatrice Strait for Best Supporting Actress, Faye Dunaway for Best Actress, Patty Chayefsky for Best Original Screenplay, and Peter Finch won Best Actor posthumously. He died in January 77, not long after the movie was released. It received a total of five acting nominations, which actually hasn't happened since. William Holden and Ned Beatty also were nominated, and we'll probably talk about it at least a little bit. I'm going to say Robert Duvall deserved a nomination as well. Really? Really? Yeah. Oh, love him in this movie. Okay. How best to describe Network to the uninitiated? There's the plot. Finch's veteran news anchorman Howard Beale is forced to retire because his ratings have gone soft. He announces his firing on TV and then states that he's going to kill himself live on television. And then in the world created by Chayefsky, Beale goes on to become a rating sensation as the mad prophet of the airwaves, thanks to his famous on-air declaration that he's mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. The characters... There's the ambitious young network executive Diana Christensen, played by Dunaway, Holden's old-school news exec who tries in vain to retain his own personal integrity and the integrity of the news division, Duvall's money-obsessed corporate hatchet man, and Beatty's sinister board chair. And then there's a band of terrorists called the Ecumenical Liberation Army who are given a series called the Mao Zedong Hour. The movie was critically acclaimed at the time, though there were dissenters. Roger Ebert loved it writing, so the movie's flawed, so it leaves us with loose ends and questions that finally doesn't bother me, because what it does accomplish is done so well, is seen so sharply, is presented so unforgivingly that Network will outlive a lot of tidier movies. Pauline Kale did not love it. The entire picture is Chayefsky sticking his head out the window and yelling, she wrote. (laughs) Here's my thought, based solely on those conclusions anyway. They're both right. Now, Josh, you somehow weren't sure if you'd seen Network before. Let's answer that first. Had you? (laughs) Yes, I had. It wasn't just the compilation of famous clips that had Mm -hmm. piled up in my mind that often show up during Oscar ceremonies. I think it was like a go-to over the years, some of these scenes. No, I did indeed see this whole movie before. Glad to see it again. Then what of Ebert's point that Network will outlive a lot of tidier movies? Neither of us can speak to what it was like to watch it in the 70s or the 80s, but I can tell you that it resonated differently watching it in 2021 versus when I saw it originally, which would have been around 1993 or 94. A listener voicemail will provide some further provocation on that front. Hey, Adam and Josh. It's Josh Weinhold from South Bend sharing some thoughts on Network, which has been one of my all-time favorites since I first saw it late one night in the college newspaper office more than 15 years ago. At the time, I was transfixed by the prescient depiction of the entertainmentfication of news and of corporate interests putting the almighty dollar ahead of the public good. Returning to it this week, though, I was left wondering whether we've now gone far beyond anything Patty Shayefsky could have predicted. I was struck by how unifying Howard Beale's rage is. His ratings only grow larger as he embodies the public's collective anger and frustration, but his only agenda is to punch up. He never seeks to turn his audience against one another. Our cultural landscape now is littered with figures who are mad as hell and not going to take it anymore, but they rile up their audiences in an effort to divide. When the primal forces of nature begin reshaping Beale's message, his audience falls away. But in the 21st century, those primal forces have mastered tactics that drive their audiences to channel their rage at each other. So, guys, I'm wondering whether you find network social satire as sharp as ever, or if, like me, you worry that society has collectively jumped the shark. Which, come to think of it, sounds like a show Diana Christensen might pitch for next year's fall lineup. 
As long as that show culminated with losers getting fed to sharks, Diana Christensen would undoubtedly greenlight it. Josh from Chicago, how do you respond to Ebert and to Josh from South Bend? Well, I do think um, Network captured what we're awash in today as well. I, I don't think what we see in the movie, we're pretty much living in. I think the movie captures that essentially. We add reality television, right? It's, it was just kind of mm-hmm. on the forefront. Now we have reality television, which is the major development, I'd say, since Network came out. Um, so I, I I don't know. I, I think it was... Uh, ahead of its time and still, you know, very much of its own time. I guess my my quibble maybe with Josh is that I don't see Howard Beale as this champion of the everyman who's always punching up. I, I think there are moments when he's a true prophet in that sense, right? That would be a true prophet. But there's also moments where he's a false prophet. There's moments where he's he's a lot like our current Fox News hosts. And ultimately, to me, rewatching this, he's more of a convenient prophet, which I think is a little different than maybe how Josh sees him. Um, but I'll get, I'll get to that maybe, those distinctions a little bit later. To his point about network as a satire, and this speaks to the longevity that Ebert predicted as well, undeniably. That's the strength of this film. Mm-hmm. That That is where it's clicking, where its points are most effectively made and taken, where we can see the wisdom of this movie. Um, Dunaway, probably the other strength of the film, I would say. I'm sure we'll get to her. Uh, partly this is because the satire is still dead on, still applies. Also because think of all the really good films Network has inspired, these movies that diagnose the great American illness. Now they all do it in different ways. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of something like Idiocracy. I'm thinking of Bamboozled. I'm thinking of Sorry to Bother You in recent years. These are all movies that tweak our enslavement to screens and uh, the way that allows us to be manipulated, mm-hmm. mostly as consumers. You know, Network wrote that script first. And and I think that's why it's great. Now, about that script though, about Chayefsky's script, this time I got to say, it's maybe where Oscar winning, I know, I had a few issues, um, just in terms of basic structure, but also when it comes to that profit element. Uh, but, but back to you first, Adam, and mm-hmm. uh, what you kind of make of Josh's question. Well, there's so much to get to. First, I do think we see a difference, to Josh's point, in the pre-Arthur Jensen sermon, Howard Beale, and the post Arthur Jensen sermon, Howard Beale. And it largely lies in that populist ethos. He's talking first about rising up against oppressors, corporate oppressors. He's talking about individualism. And then after Arthur Jensen, he's saying, you know what? Corporations, they really do run everything. There's no hope. The individual is dead. He's saying everything we've ever come to believe, whether it was true or not about America, is dead and you should forget it. So I think I do understand where Josh is coming from there. Another thing I'll say that just occurred to me is we've been watching these 76 movies out of order. Pretty random. We started with All the President's Men, then we went to Taxi Driver, and now to this. And it's an interesting progression, isn't it? Because in network, they're talking about this malaise. Certainly Howard Beale is tapping into how disillusioned Everyone in the country seems to feel he even references Watergate. So in all the president's men, we see the making of this, the making of the country's undoing. And then in Taxi Driver, you see someone like Travis Bickle and you wonder, how would he react to Howard Beale? 
If yes. he wasn't just watching Soul Train or whatever is on, including like an old detective show or a soap opera or something, maybe he'd be watching the news and he'd be the guy who would go to the window and yell. And some of these revolutionaries that we see, we talked about this with Bickle being this man of isolation, God's lonely man. And what we see just a few years later here in Network is a group of people coming together to rise up maybe with a little bit more political purpose than Travis Bickle actually has. But anyway, I thought that, I thought that progression was at least notable. I don't know if you were thinking about it too. Well, Bickle is absolutely in the audience for, um, for Beale's false prophet phase, you Mm -hmm. know, where, where he is just telling folks to get angry. And I think it's very telling. And I love that you brought it around to Bickle because what what does he do even in one scene where he tells them to um, to e- express their rage? He even says something, I can't remember the line exactly, but something like, I don't know what you should do after that. <laughs> He's, he gives them no direction. Right. There's no, there's no like target, even, even good target. So if you think about, you know, it's a limited truth that Beale is preaching when he's that false prophet um, and just telling people to express their rage. I think even that late night scene where he has this visitation, he hears mm-hmm. this voice. The voice even says, we're not talking about eternal truth or absolute truth or ultimate truth. We're talking about impermanent, transient human truth. So that's a limited truth. That is just the rage. He doesn't give them any direction. He doesn't give them any hope. It's unchanneled, unfocused rage. And what does that result in? It results in Travis Bickle. It's exploited by people like Diana, by other mm-hmm. media outlets. It's exploited by corporations, as we'll see. You know, that that last phase of Beale is tricky because he is being manipulated by Ned Beatty's corporate overlord, even as he's sort of speaking his Completely. own truth at the same time, right? So so he's this false prophet who's being manipulated. Um, and then, you know, we've lived through politicians recently doing this, mm-hmm. garnering populist rage, not directing it anywhere, um, truthful, just telling it to be vented. And that's where, that's where the prophet thing is tricky because he doesn't really become a true prophet to me until those sequences you were talking about, Adam, where he... He starts to bite the hand that has created him. Well, that's right? Television. where we really see it. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And I guess I will just say this, and I don't know if we're really splitting hairs or not. I think that sense of truth not being transient and being limited and just at least trying to get people to not be apathetic, but to actually be angry, that's enough. Isn't that actually more honest than suggesting that he does know what it's path honest. they should take? Right. Yeah. And so that's my thing with Beale is that I do at least think that he – is never really a false prophet, or at least this is what I'm kicking around, Josh, the idea that he's not false because even if what he is saying or the underlying message we could quibble with or say isn't clear-sighted enough or actually productive in any way, he believes it. Unlike a prophet who knowingly is spreading falsity, I believe what he's tapping into. I believe that he believes it. And even this is where the contradiction comes in. And I think the complexity of the script and what I love about it so much is that even when he's then completely contradicting himself a few nights later, after meeting with Ned Beatty's Arthur Jensen, he's still saying the truth. In fact, he might actually be saying what's more of an actual truth. It's just not what the people want to hear. It's not what any of us would want to hear. The time has come to say is dehumanization such a bad word. If it's good or bad, that's what is so. The whole world is becoming humanoid, creatures that look human but aren't. 
the whole world, not just us, we're just the most advanced country, so we're getting there first. The whole world's people are becoming mass-produced, programmed, numbered, insensate things. Yeah, I think that's the tricky thing with Beale as a character is he was he was more of a tool for me this time around. I didn't ever really get a sense of, you know, fully what he did believe, where he was losing control of his senses, legitimately becoming mentally ill, and, and where it was this existential force actually speaking to him. Those things got mixed because I felt like he kept being used depending on how the screenplay wanted him to be used. And I guess, you know, yes, he's not a false prophet in the sense of like, um, you know, Robert Mitchum in the night of the hunter where he's, you know, he's preaching this Mm -hmm. false gospel. Um, but he's not a true prophet because true prophets speak truth to power. And, and he becomes one, as I was saying, when he does start telling the audience that you are slaves and he starts hinting about the corporate machinations going on in the background that get him into trouble. That's the power he's, he's rousing at that point. And that's why Ned Beatty brings him into the, into the boardroom for that amazing scene and, you know, gives him that booming speech. So it's when he starts talking truth to power, um, he does become a true prophet, but I still think at the end of the day, he registered mostly for me this time around as this convenient prophet because he's a tool of Chayefsky's screenplay, which is, um, you know, this is didactic cinema. Yes. And I, I'm trying to come around on that. You know, I've, I've always been a little bit hesitant to it, even though one of my I favorite- you'd struggle. Even though one of my favorite filmmakers, Spike Lee, is, you know, maybe the king of didactic cinema, okay? And so, like, the message here, I, I totally, as we've talked about, it's prescient, on point, mm-hmm. needed, necessary. Um, but in watching Beale this time around, I did feel like- <laughs> This was just this figure. We didn't get to really know him as a character or what, especially how the movie begins with just these two guys going out for a drink Mm -hmm. and really rooted in their shared past together. Eventually, we no longer really, the movie doesn't seem that interested in Beale as a person. He becomes this this figure that can be used depending on what points the screenplay wants to make. They're great points. They're fascinating points. The Finch is amazing in delivering them. I love the transition he makes from this mm-hmm. morose older guy to the televangelist to the the guy who's really likely lost his mind. I mean, the performance is good, yes, but it's it's a convenient figure for the screenplay. Is yeah, how it struck I, me. I I don't see it that way. I definitely see it as more ambiguous by design, and actually one of the strengths, as I was mentioning earlier, in that there's a moment, for example, it's when he's giving the "I'm mad as hell" speech, and we cut to Diana, Faye Dunaway, reacting like this overzealous, proud mother who knows that she can milk this for whatever she wants. And we as viewers, I think most of us look at that character and say, OK, she's she's on the wrong side of this. So if she's reacting positively, well, that's not necessarily a good thing. Well, then you've got on the other side, William Holden's character who's scoffing at it and who thinks it's an embarrassment and can't believe anyone would be swayed by it. And. The reality is, is that as a viewer, I'm right in the middle where I'm going, well, he's kind of making a lot of sense, but he also is off his rocker and probably should be in a home or at least getting some kind of treatment. And he definitely shouldn't be getting more airtime. And yet I like what he has to say. I find myself reacting viscerally to what he's saying. So I think that that is complexity that really draws me into network. And in terms of the didacticism, definitely this time. First time I'd seen it, as I mentioned, since probably 93 or 94. There are definitely parts that seem overwritten. There are moments that seem overacted. There are parts where Chayefsky through Beale is perhaps 
not just attacking corporatism and capitalism run amok, but relying on a little xenophobia to unify his American audience. There are problematic aspects of network. I see it and none of it overrides. I'll use that word again. It's prescience. It's perceptiveness. It's sense of humor. And the entire brilliant satirical DNA that is its foundation. And satire is a word that I think often gets used or misused to describe a lot of different types of art or content, if you will. But with network, I'm talking about the pure stuff, the acute but outrageous Swiftian let's solve poverty by selling poor kids to the rich for food stuff. There simply for me isn't a better piece of cinematic satire. That ending, I'm going to give people listening, radio or podcast, a chance here in a sec. I'll give you the cue to turn the radio off for 15 seconds or hit the jump ahead button on your phone if you haven't seen it. But here it is. So what do we do about this Beal son of a bitch? I suppose we'll have to kill him. I don't suppose you have any ideas on that Diana. Well, what would you fellas say to an assassination? I think I can get the Mao Zedong people to kill Beale for us. It's one of their shows. In fact, it'll make a hell of a kickoff show for the season. We're facing heavy opposition on the other networks. That ending is so incredible and chilling watching a group of TV execs deciding to murder one of their personalities live on TV with the same gravity and solemnity they'd give to ordering takeout. Mm-hmm. Is it is it realistic? Of course not. It's absurd. But is it that, is. It, yes, I, I get it. That that is that is the line it's walking. But it's also not something we actually believe is probably taking place. But that's the entire point. Is Diana Christensen being so consumed with her work and her ambition that she literally talks only about TV deals and ratings while on a romantic weekend getaway with her lover, mm-hmm. including during sex? Realistic. No, it's absurd. But I do think that absurdity and that irony is why Network's message is so lucid and so potent. And I mentioned that it resonated differently this time. When I saw it originally in the 90s, it felt sort of groundbreaking and clairvoyant enough in what it foretold about journalism and the media and infotainment about the unchecked power of corporations. But it's not like those things were new in the 1970s. Chayefsky just envisioned the inevitable sad trajectory. What was amazing at that time was to see him predict the rise of reality TV, as you mentioned, which was then flourishing in the 90s. Diana's obsession with taking real footage, real events, and turning them into programming, creating stars out of quote-unquote real people— I do know that An American Family aired in 1973 on PBS, but I couldn't believe how right Chayefsky was when I saw it back in the 90s. And now you watch it in 2021, and you recognize that it's not just reality TV. It's user-generated content. It's, it's reality as captured by the people experiencing the events. In 1976, in this movie, it's a terrorist group with one person shooting a bank robbery with a movie camera. Now, right... We see insurrectionists storming the Capitol. Every single one of them has their phone in their hand and they're shooting video. They're streaming to Facebook or Twitch or whatever platform they choose. And that is what really struck me this time when you hear Howard Beale talking about 
the madness of it all and talking about the illusion of television and trying to tell people to turn their TV sets off and saying, this tube is the gospel. It can make or break presidents. And he has that great line where he says, the tube is the most awesome goddamn propaganda force in the whole godless world. And woe is us if it ever falls into the hands of the wrong people. Well, today... Howard Beale wouldn't get anybody to go to the window because if they had the TV on at all to the news, it would just be background noise as they stared at their phones. You know, replace turn off your television sets with turn off your phones. It's really no different, except it's actually it's more ubiquitous, more dangerous, more desensitizing and even more disconnected from reality. Yeah, and that and that's why I said the American sickness is, you know, more screens than actually specifically yeah. television. And you bring up the insurrectionists, you know, that's an example of the unchanneled rage. How much of that footage that we saw was of these morons just like wandering around once they got in? Because they mm-hmm. some of them had principled ex- not principle, that's the wrong word, but specific <laughs> reasons for being there. But how many others of them got in there once their rage was vented? They didn't know what they were supposed to do. And and I guess that's like those sequences of the people yelling out the windows. That's the kind that's the exact same kind of rage we're hearing there. I want to go back to that scene where they're talking about um having Beale murdered. The corporate execs, the TV execs. The reason I said it's believable is, and here we should probably give Lumet some credit, is just how that I can't remember exactly how many edits there are, but it's a very casually blocked yes. scene where they transition so seamlessly from these boring corporate discussions of ratings points and so forth into, well, how are we going to kill him? And and like their tones don't shift, that nothing dramatic happens with the camera. It doesn't no no, no music like it's amps banal, up. It's as just evil is. And that's the satire. And the other satire that was um so perfect that I had really forgot about was how much of the subplot involved this communist activist played by Marlene Warfield, who Diana recruits to find this footage you're talking about from other from extremist groups mm-hmm. that she has connections with. And we get that great scene where Warfield is negotiating with the leader of this extremist group and some TV execs over. I forget I forget what the term is, but it's something I don't even know what it means. I think right. it was something like uh, distribution charges or rights. Yeah. And, and she's delivering this Warfield, as Lorraine Hobbs is the character's name, she's delivering this like it's a fiery speech, a revolutionary speech, but they're talking about distribution charges. I'm not giving this pseudo-insurrectionary sectarian a piece of my show. I'm not giving him script approval, and I sure as ain't cutting him into my distribution charges. You fascist! Did you see the film we made in the San Bruno jailbreakout demonstrating the rising up of the seminal prisoner class infrastructure? You can blow the seminal prisoner class infrastructure out your ass! I'm not knocking down my goddamn distribution charges! Man, give her the f***ing overhead claws. That is the sort of, like sorry to bother you bamboozled idiocracy yes. level satire that is so rich in network that I think is just great. Um, now I do want to, uh, we mentioned Dunaway a couple of times and I just love how she devours this movie. Me too. I, you know what I think she's <laughs> doing here? We've characterized her, um, you know, a couple of ways we could, you could call her driven, brazen, unscrupulous. She really made me wonder if, if um, she was a model 
for those sleazy business types that Michael Douglas would specialize in during the 1980s because I got such vibes like from her like that. And, and then there's great little moments she gives when um, her boss, Duval is talking about his hesitancy about putting Beale, this is early on, on the air, and says something about how we're talking about putting a manifestly irresponsible man on television. As he's saying that, Lumet cuts to Dunaway and her eyebrows, her iconic eyebrows, yes. just go like higher and higher. Yes. Like every word, Yes, every word he uses to, to argue against this gets her more excited That's right. about the possibility. So yeah, just the, the fact you mentioned the scene on the romantic getaway with Holden where she's just talking business. She's like this dead-eyed great white shark just zeroing in on her career. It's the only thing she can think about. And it's just an amazing performance. It really is. But as histrionic or as shrill as the performance sometimes is, and no matter how much we, I think, probably most viewers anyway, loathe her as a character... There are these quieter moments and these subtler moments where she's really remarkable. I love the scene, for example, where she comes to Max Schumacher, William Holden's office, late at night, and it's really their first encounter. And she basically seduces him. That's where I got the Douglas vibes. There you go, right? It's all calculation, but at the same time, there's nothing – here's that word again – there's nothing actually false about it. I believe every single word she's saying, and there's a self-awareness to it and a self-awareness to the performance that matches the overall self-awareness of the movie, obviously, including the relationship between her and Schumacher and the way Chayefsky frames it in terms of this conceit of a TV melodrama and the way that that plays out. And that brings us to near the end of the film, that last – big scene, that last big throwdown with Dunaway and Holden, she's getting monologued at. She is getting destroyed. Chayefsky doesn't really give her anything to do. This is Holden as his mouthpiece getting to tell off the heartless, cold television generation. And as you're watching it, I'm thinking, how do you, as Faye Dunaway, how do you play this scene without just being a doormat or being a witch and that delivery of her line where she says then don't leave me it's actually bracing i think in that it's an expression of actual emotion but it's subtle it is really subtle it feels like a real moment and here again is the ambiguity it's so real because i don't know that i actually believe that she means it i don't think she well, knows whether or not there, she means it is but that those, the line where there's those a layers hiccup? come through does she have a little hiccup in that line where there's a pause? If it's not that line, it's another one in that scene where she lets us know exactly what you're pointing at, Adam, is that she's either trying to convince herself um, right. or, or, you know, she's not there yet herself. Because one thing about Diana is she never lies, right? Even in that that's early she's scene she is, in his always. office, she's telling him, this is what I want to have happen tonight. If you're interested, great. If you're not great, this is what I want to do in that's terms it. of our business partnership. And throughout the movie, she never lies to anyone. So there's something admirable there. And I do think she's great in that climactic scene between them. And I was having the same thoughts as you. I think the scene overall as written, um, and you know, you can't hold it against Holden because it's the material he's given. I just mm-hmm. don't think it works because I can forgive Beale becoming uh Chayefsky's mouthpiece because it it is this sort of prophetic figure as we've been discussing. But Holden is supposed to be more rooted, down to earth, um, a character we can relate to. And he gradually transitions. Another scene is between 
Um, he and his wife, we mentioned uh, Beatrice Strait, who won the Oscar. There's a scene between them as well where they start talking about, you know, how their life is resembling this melodrama script that Diana is writing. And you can just see the screenplay so much over yes. those scenes, as good as the actors are. And so that that climactic one between Holden and Dunaway, I, as good as she is in it. Um, I, I don't think it, I don't think their relationship overall works because it's kind of caught in between trying to bring some character, some real people into this story and still having it stand metaphorically for the larger points Chavsky wants to make. Um, and, and I think it can never quite, um, manage those two things at once. Your television incarnate, Diana, indifferent to suffering insensitive to joy. All of life is reduced to the common rubble of banality. War, murder, death. All the same to you as bottles of beer. And the daily business of life is a corrupt comedy. You even shatter the sensations of time and space into split seconds and instant replays. Yeah, I definitely... Watching that scene this time, and this is where I mention some scenes maybe being overwritten, in that last big showdown between them, when Holden says, after living with you for the last six months, I'm turning into one of your scripts. Well, this is not a script, Diana. There's some real actual life going on here. I said, okay, that's, that's a mouthful for an actor to actually sell convincingly. And I'm going to say that for the most part, Bill Holden does it. It works well enough for me, but it did stand out for me this time, Josh. Well, you know what is is kind of the issue at the very beginning about their relationship is that Holden doesn't discover anything new about Diana that would lead him to either get that involved with her or to leave her. Everything he quote unquote comes to find out about her, he knows the second she walks into that office. Yeah. Yeah. So I I, th- I don't think it, the whole like convention of having them give this arc to their relationship doesn't work because there's there is no arc to it he knows everything about her already no and i think that's completely accurate and maybe because of that i was paying even more attention to it this time and why i was invested in that relationship at all or why i believed it in terms of the script and i think this time i recognize that it can work if you see it in the scope of the whole script where diana has no real genuine affection for him or sees this relationship as anything profound, but she does need to be tethered to reality in some way. What he says as much of a mouthful as it is, it is, it is accurate. I believe that anyway about her character. And I also believe exactly what he says to his wife, that this is the last chance for him at something, some kind of feeling, maybe no different than Peter Finch saying, I still matter. And I'm going to express myself, even if it's just a bunch of rage, he's saying, you know what? You're not just going to push me out the door. I'm not just going to be this Zion of TV news. And I'm just going to go out to pasture. This is sort of my last chance to prove myself as the still kind of virile man of action. And she is only a response to that because she really can't be anything else. There is no way in those scenes I mentioned earlier, the romantic weekend getaway where he is actually having a good time, but right. he is playing along. He is playing along because I think, I think he needs it and she needs it just as he does say to her late in the film. So I guess that's how I convinced myself, Josh, of what Chayefsky was after with that couple. 
All right, so convince me um, why Duval is so great in in this because I had some. I'm glad I, you. Asked. I struggled with his performance. Well, I'm glad you asked. Even though I'll say it's one of those performances that I just love every moment of it. I don't know how to completely articulate it, but there isn't a line reading or a set of grimaces or expressions I didn't find surprising and just fun as hell. When he says, for example, to the guy playing Nelson Cheney, the the president of the network, the ineffectual president, he says, we're not a respectable network. And he says, well, I don't want any part of it. I don't fancy myself the president of a whorehouse. And Hackett says, that's very commendable of you, Nelson. Now sit down. Your indignation is duly recorded. You can always resign tomorrow. And just just very calmly puts him completely in his place. That's one of the scenes I love. But it's honestly, it's just watching him in agony as he is hearing what Howard Beale said on the airwaves, knowing that Arthur Jensen is going to call him back to New York the next day and he's going to probably get fired. And you just see how it's tearing him apart. It's all in the way he kind of grits his teeth, the way he smiles in a completely false way. It's just Duvall. It's just Duvall yeah. to me. It's a pure I, Duvall performance. I'm finished. Any second that phone's going to ring and Clarence McElhaney's going to tell me Mr. Jensen wants me in his office tomorrow morning so he can personally chop my head off. Four hours ago, I was a sun god at CCA. Mr. Jensen's hand-picked golden boy. The heir apparent. Now, <laughs> I'm a man without a corporation. <laughs> Let's get back to Howard Beale. <laughs> I like how Dunaway snaps him out of it <laughs> because I was thinking like, please, please stop. We get the point. He like keeps struggling for more metaphors for how much trouble he's in, how far he's fallen. It's so overwritten and overperformed. I, I, I can't remember a guy with so little hair constantly pushing back his hair in one movie. (laughs) It's like, there's nothing there, Bobby. I mean, you can keep going for it. I don't know. I I think that he, it's, it's a movie of a lot of performances that are didactic, but he's the only one I found who was kind of overdoing the material, which didn't, which didn't need, you know, much doing at all. I did like on his desk. I like the touch. This is nothing to do with the performance, but what does the sign say on his desk? I kindly refrain from smoking in this room. And it was just a nice visual, like joke. Here's this guy who's supposed to be the hard ass in the movie. Right. Right. Um, And then he has that in 1976, he has this on his desk. Please refrain from smoking here. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, the hard ass in the movie, we got to talk about Ned Beatty's scene. He's where, so good. And oh, that my goodness. Incredible. That is where Lumet pulls out the filmmaking stops. I feel 100%, like percent. you know, 100%. the lights go down in this boardroom. He sits Beale down. He's going to ream him out for, for going on air and talking about the corporations and so forth. And he gives this, um, what is what is it, a corporate cosmology? Is that the phrase? He throws at him. It's this. I mean, there's the prophet of evil is what, yes. is what Nate, Ned Beatty is. And and Lumet frames him. There's all of these glowing green reading lamps on this long conference table. And it's just like there's these oracles of globalism chanting around Ned Beatty as he booms from Mount Capitalism. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. Is that clear? You think you merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. 
You are an old man. I totally forgot that scene as well, and it's astonishing. It's incredible. And let's give credit here to the cinematographer, the great cinematographer, Owen Roisman, who in the 70s, just going to mention some of the titles in addition to Network, The French Connection, The Heartbreak Kid, The Exorcist, Three Days of the Condor. And I agree that's the standout scene in the movie in so many ways. But in terms of the filmmaking, utilizing the boardroom table and the space with those lights you mentioned, I was watching it thinking like we discussed with all the president's men, are they using a diopter here? And I don't think they are, but it's almost a diopter effect where because of those lights and where the camera is positioned almost underneath them shooting through them, it seems that Ned Beatty is very distant while also right on top of you, right on top of Beale, just overpowering him. And it really does make you think of Jensen in that scene as a director. You know, he brings him into that space Mm -hmm. for a reason. He dims the lights. He positions himself just so and starts his oration. And then that that line where he finally then breaks and says, am I getting through to you? (laughs) Is hilarious. That's the line of the movie. And, you know, I think it's easy without psychoanalyzing too much here or reading too much into his personal biography. I don't know a whole lot about Patty Chayefsky, other than I will say I read Dave Itzkoff's book about the making of Network. Very good, very fun read. I also read the biography of Bob Fosse, and he was really intimate friends with Patty Chayefsky. So I have a little bit of background, and it's easy to see the Howard Beale in Patty Chayefsky. It's easy to see the William Holden in this scene, I'm watching Arthur Jensen and thinking not only of, you know, Lamette and the the symmetry to a director, but I'm thinking about Chayefsky as a storyteller, where you've got that kind of fire and brimstone preacher, the didacticism of that. I'm here to impart a very important message that you better listen to. <laughs> but he's also trying to frame it as a storyteller. He's considering how to best get through to his audience. And in this case, that's how Jensen sets up the entire scene. So, yeah, I think that's one of the standouts. And I think Beatty is incredible in it. All right. Real quick. One last question I got for you. The the occasional narration, the whole the movie mm-hmm. begins with this voiceover narration, kind of a TV announcer setting things up. And I think it comes back five or six times more again than I remembered. Why do you think that's there? Is it just another kind of meta play on TV tropes yeah. that they wanted to layer in? Because um, other than that, I was kind of like, we're, it's not really giving us anything new. No, and it really probably isn't necessary. I'm not sure that it really moves anything along, but there is something about the framing of it, that device, that self-awareness. I think maybe if it was actually used just a little bit more than it was, it probably would have been very annoying. But as it is, the beginning, the end, couple key moments in between as transitions, I didn't have a problem with it watching it this time. Yeah, yeah, it just stood out to me. And and again, I'm thinking it's, you know, they're referring to their lives as a script of Diana's and here the movie mm-hmm. obviously has a script. It's also being narrated as a script. So it fits. Yeah, going back to Lumet and Roisman for a second, actually, while I was thinking about this today, I put it on in the background here at my desk just so I could kind of be watching network and maybe, you know, gathering something through osmosis, Josh. And you know what really struck me? When I think about network, and I just watched it two nights ago, I, in my head, think about how dark it is. I think about the scenes like with Jensen. I think about the scenes in the boardroom at the end. I think about the scenes on Howard Beale's set when he's the mad prophet and it's all dark and so artificially lit. And I was kind of shocked to go back and have it on and I'd keep looking up at the screen and through the first half or so of the movie, it is very 
evenly and brightly lit. And Lumet is constantly, and Roisman are constantly relying on natural light to tell this story. It really isn't that dark at all. It's only as the movie itself gets darker and darker and everybody gets, it seems, a little bit more corrupted that then it's like every moment is a TV set moment. But earlier in the movie, if you go back and look, all of those scenes in offices or that take place well, at that's UBS, yeah. there's a ton of natural light always coming into the room. Yeah, they're in this this corporate high rise. The these are day meetings, and so that's kind of the setting. And then you're right, we transition into the studio more. More things take place at night, and the movie overall grows darker. Yeah, and you mentioned the script, and I understand you're wrestling with the didacticism a little bit, but there is a poetry to it, and I use that word because I did catch part of an interview today where Chayefsky is asked about the poetry of the script and whether or not audiences will accept it. And I think what I'm getting at, or I want to get at, is just the language of the script, the word choices, the way it doesn't feel natural all the time, and yet the way the characters deliver it, it does feel like it makes sense within this world. There's a line of Duvall's, actually, that I've quoted fairly often throughout my life. And when you think about quotable lines from network, nobody would ever point to this one, right? There's all these lines, I'm mad as hell. And for me, there are times where if someone says something to me where they're trying to qualify how firmly I feel about something or how firmly someone else feels about something. And there's that line at the end where they ask him just one more time, well, how did Mr. Jensen really feel about Howard Beale? Like, can we fire him? And he says... I would describe his feelings as intractable and adamantine. Now, nobody uses that <laughs> phrase in real life, right? But in this movie, it makes sense. And it makes sense that it's pushing on the audience in that way. It's the kind of film that makes you maybe actually go home and get out the dictionary and try to understand what some of the characters are saying. I'll also mention a little moment. It's a complete throwaway moment. And I don't even know if it's one Lumet was very conscious about, but it, I think gets at some of the subtle choices that really make this movie what it is when they show, I think his name's Edward Ruddy and he's the head of the company and he's who everybody reports to at this point. He's in kind of a power struggle with Frank Hackett, with Duvall's character. And he goes to meet with William Holden's character in his office. I think he might even be going at this point actually to, to ask him to come back after he's fired him. He's about ready to, to leave, and this is his last day at UBS. And he goes in, but he doesn't just show him walk into the office. He doesn't just show him sitting down or having a conversation with William Holden. He shows him enter the floor and walk up to the receptionist and walk past like four people all just doing their jobs. And in every case you see how all of those people react to him. They are all deferential. They all show their respect to him because he's the boss, the big boss. And in a movie that really is, in a lot of ways, about power, who has it, who's losing it, you do need to see that. Nothing is even really said. It's just all in the blocking of that and the movement of those characters. You see how they defer to him as the man in charge. Well, and this this goes back to Beatty too, right? Because we're constantly trying to track these layers of authority that you're talking about. Who's over who? How are they related professionally? Who's really holding the cards here? And it is communicated in details like that. We only see before that boardroom scene, Beatty's character once, very briefly at another mm -hmm. uh, board meeting, he gives a few words of approval. 
and then he disappears and we hear him referred to. But then when we get him, it's like we've left, this goes back to the filmmaking too. We've left those daytime offices where there are all these, you know, these little ways of showing deference and Mm -hmm. who's in charge. And now we are in this, I don't know, it's a totally different building. It's almost Gothic. Yeah. It's a little lights are down. It's like, okay, if there's a guy at the top or the bottom, I think we finally found him when Beatty shows up. Yeah, I don't know if it was by accident or not either, but I even noticed today when it was on in the background that the same type of green lights that are in that Ned Beatty scene with Peter Finch, which I'm sure have an exact name that I'm not aware of, where you pull the, pull yeah, the I think string like and they reading, turn on. Reading lamps, yeah, that's I think. what yeah, they seem library, like. They seem reading like reading lamps. lamps, like at a library. They're the same kind of lights, it seemed to me, almost in the scene where you have Faye Dunaway being feeded as like she's some politician who's just won the presidency there's all these red lights on the table Mm. just like those green ones and that's where everything does kind of get a little bit more sinister as i said network is available to stream on most platforms i wonder if patty chayefsky would be happy about that or not it also plays on a loop over at the ubs network you can look for that on your cable provider for more on our seven from 76 best year ever series visit filmspotting.net slash seven from 76 we do only have one more 76 title to get to before we complete our 77 best picture nominee homework we are going to talk about the eventual winner rocky that will come here in a couple of weeks Another movie with 10 Oscar nominations, it's your beloved Mank, Adam. We're going to discuss this year's contenders when we come back. Plus, I think I may be bidding farewell to my beloved, my neighbor Totoro, when we talk film spotting madness, followed by our 40s Noir Marathon review of Laura. Stay with us. to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but where to call him Mank? Mankowitz. I guess that means it's time to bring back the Mank bit, Josh. Yeah, now it's it's just going to have to be Mank. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) It's like, of course, of course it's Mank. Yeah. You're listening to Film Spotting. The Oscar nominations were announced earlier this week, and yes, David Fincher's Mank came away with the biggest haul. It received 10, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor for Gary Oldman. We do have an Oscar episode planned for April. Our friend Michael Phillips hopefully will show up in his tux and tails. But we did want to spend just a few minutes on the noms. Did any surprise you? Josh, for good or for bad? Well, I mean, you know, Mank is the predictable one, right? That's that's what old school Oscar voters would absolutely go for. But if you look beyond that, I do think this is a, a decent best picture list. It's a fairly diverse slate of stories and filmmakers. Uh, maybe Trial of the Chicago 7 is the other one that probably represents the Oscar old guard. But other than that, you've got 
you know, some real surprises like Promising Young Woman, which I'm not, I'm positive on, not that high on. And Mm -hmm. it makes me wonder if that's, you know, a small film that came out later in the year and got mixed, I'd say, to positive reviews, uh, fairly divisive. So maybe that's a reflection of a new segment of the Oscar voting group that they would go for a film like that. I think that's promising. I was surprised Lakeith Stanfield got a nomination. I expected Daniel Kaluuya uh, for Judas and the Black Messiah, um, but not necessarily Stanfield. And a little weird, you know, I know there's a conversation about why the supporting thing, Kaluuya got supporting too, seems to me like Kaluuya was in the supporting part, but whatever. Two good performances. Glad both are recognized. Glad Stephen Young is recognized. He was in mm-hmm. my top five performances of the year last year. So, yeah, I mean, going back to that best picture grouping, I don't really have a strong horse in the race this year. If I look at those, Sound of Metal is my highest ranked best picture contender on my mm-hmm. list. I had it at number 14 of the year, followed by Nomadland at number 16, and then Minari at number 22. So this, it, it's been a long time since I haven't had you know, one of my top eight to 10 films actually in the best picture race. Still, I like most of the ones that are there. Yeah, I guess I feel a little bit differently than you, even though I have two films from my top 10 in the best picture race. I'm struck by how much of a weak crowd I think the best picture crop is. And I think that's Coming from someone who doesn't actively dislike any of the nominees, I think Trial of the Chicago 7 is definitely the weakest, but Sound of Metal is the only great film, I think, that's in the bunch, and it was my number four. Yeah, it's my number four of the year. And then you've got a lot of movies that I'm way more mixed on than a lot of other people, including Minari and Nomadland. As exciting as it is to see Chloe Zhao get this recognition, as you well know, I loved her previous film, The Writer, but even Judas and the Black Messiah, The Father, these are movies that I was a little bit mixed on. And we talked about all of them except Minari at some point in some fashion over the past few months. And I see them all as having some kind of fundamental storytelling or conceptual issues. It was actually fun, or I would say refreshing over the weekend. I was listening to a podcast where the great critic Wesley Morris came on and he talked for 45 minutes or so about the Oscars. And it was nice to hear Josh, someone who felt similarly about a lot of these movies, including thinking sound of metals, the best. He also is very favorable on Mank, but otherwise had problems with all of the other films. And of course it's Wesley Morris. He wasn't dismissive of any of these movies, but he was talking about Minari and summed up in two words or maybe a four or five word phrase, what it would have taken me about 10 minutes to try to articulate. And that was, he said, it's all just very Sundance 96. And Hmm. and just with those two words, Sundance 96, that's the best description of Minari. I understand why a lot of people love it, but that is how I feel about the movie as well in terms of, I think, some of its heavy handedness and storytelling choices, even though I do love the Stephen Yun performance. So, Anyway, just a little bit of support I felt from Wesley Morris over the weekend, and I will link to that podcast in the show notes at filmspotting.net if anybody is curious. I guess I just wished I felt stronger about more of these titles. Yeah, I'll have to defend Minari a little bit more because, as I said, it was at number 22. I think it's quite good. I recognize the storytelling shifts the movie takes 
that are familiar and you can probably predict are coming. Mm-hmm. But to focus on that, I think, is is to overlook not only two great performances, the two, the two leads, but also just a lot of very careful, personal filmmaking that you don't always get from those Sundance sort of films that are, this is not a movie that feels contrived from the beginning to win an award at Sundance, which is what I think of when I hear that phrase. Mm-hmm. I think this is a much more genuine effort than that, that does make some Sundancey storytelling choices. That's kind of how I'd characterize okay. it, which is probably why I'm a little bit higher on it than you. But yeah, otherwise yeah. we're both in agreement. Like, you know, compared to previous Oscar Best Picture nominee years, I would say this is a weak list. Yeah. A- and maybe you have a few more issues with some of the titles than I do. Mm-hmm. In terms of what I was happy to see, Sound of Metal, we mentioned it, the best film for both of us in the Oscar race. How many nominations did it end up with, Josh? Is it six? I think. Sounds right. Paul Racy for Best Supporting Actor. And obviously I named him my number one or two favorite supporting male performance of the year. And I knew there was some buzz around him, but it almost seemed too good to be true. So to see him get that nod was wonderful. Best Picture, of course, Riz Ahmed also getting a nomination for Best Actor. Sound editing in the mix. So, I mean, that's that's at least five right there. Yep, there are six. Yeah, for okay. sure. And it is well-deserved for all of those categories, but including the production ones, the sound and the editing. The other person I had in that mix, top one or two favorite supporting male turns of the year, Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami, I really think is a remarkable performance as Sam Cooke. That one may be a little more inevitable than Paul Racy, though it wasn't at the time I saw the movie and fell in love with the performance, and I'm really glad that he did get that nom. Another Round is a movie that I had in my top 15 of the year. The Danish film starring Mads Mikkelsen, that got a Best Foreign Language Film nomination. We were both very high on Amanda Seyfried, and she got her Best Supporting Actress nom for Mank. That's a Mank nom you can get behind, Josh, right? I I like that one, yep. Okay, two more that I'm sure we were both happy about. Time, the Garrett Bradley documentary, Mm -hmm. one of our Golden Brick contenders, getting a documentary nod, and Wolf Walkers. Up yeah. there with your beloved soul in the animation category. Oh man, I, it's I feel like I'm a film spotting madness choice here, having to you know pick between those. Soul, of course, what was it? My number two of the year, so I'm going to yeah. go that way. But I do love seeing uh, Wolf Walkers and Cartoon Saloon really getting a seat now, a regular seat at the animation recognition table because they deserve it. The Oscar ceremony is scheduled for Sunday, April 25th. We do have a little bit of homework to do. Before that, Josh, in terms of Oscar disappointments, my biggest disappointment is that I have homework to do. I knew it was going to happen, but I was maybe hopeful the list would be slightly smaller than it is. Two of the movies starring Best Actress nominees are current blind spots for both of us, right? Pieces of a Woman with yep. Vanessa Kirby and The United States versus Billie Holiday with Andra Day. Pieces of a Woman is directed by Cornela Mundrutsu, who made 2014's White God, as I recall, Josh, one of your favorite movies of that year. So why haven't you stepped up yet? Yeah, I, th- I think it might have been my second favorite movie of uh, it hit the U.S. in 2015. Very good question. I'm going to say because I didn't realize 
that he had directed this. I knew Kirby was in it. Uh, I knew that much about it and love her from Mission Impossible Fallout mm-hmm. and also not this recent season of The Crown, but she had a recurring role earlier in The Crown where she was quite good. So yeah, I'm going to have to definitely see this one before the Oscar ceremony. Ellen Burstyn, Shia LaBeouf, and Benny Safdie also star in Pieces of a Woman, I Can Tell You, why I haven't seen it yet, because I've read the plot description multiple times, and every time I tried to psych myself up to watch it, I decided that it seemed just a little too depressing and harrowing, Josh. Oh, do you want to share a little more or just leave it at that? No, I'll leave it at that. But of course, now I have no excuse. If we're going to do an Oscar show, I'm going to have to watch it. I will also watch, despite, is this accurate, Josh, middling to negative reviews for the U.S. versus Billie Holiday, but not Andrew Day's performance, I am going to have to finally watch this film. You love music biopics, Josh. Well, this is just it. The performance is the draw here, and how many times do we hear that? Well, you know, but so-and-so is great as so-and-so. You know, that does make me want to see this, especially just because, you know, Billie Holiday, you're going to presumably get the music that will help as well. Um, But yeah, it does seem like one of those sort of boring biopics, great performance scenarios. So let's see, maybe it'll surprise us. Yeah, it's playing exclusively on Hulu. This is Andrew Day's first starring role directed by Lee Daniels, who also made The Butler and Precious. Now, The other big question, Josh, that I'm asking myself, so I'm going to put you on the spot first. Glenn Close. She's been nominated for eight Oscars. Great actress. Her first back in My Beloved, The World According to Garp from 1983. But she has never won. Will you be catching up with Glenn Close in Hillbilly Elegy? I, it's, it's, you know, it's on the list. It's way, way way down there behind like there's a documentary called my octopus teacher mm-hmm. i think i think that's ahead of hillbillyology for me so yeah don't count on it okay well we haven't totally decided this but we thought you probably have some oscar homework to do so you can either play along next week or you have oscar homework to do but you don't want to do it and we'll do it for you so we're going to catch up with at least a couple of these films and talk about them on next week's show does that sound correct josh yeah, I like that plan. Maybe okay. maybe we'll be able to fit in um, those two we first mentioned, Pieces of a Woman and U.S. versus Billie Holiday. Maybe I'll, I'll catch up with the doc, the octopus teacher doc, too. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see what we can pull off in this next week. Okay. A couple of giveaway-related notes. We'll get to our Pixie Digital Code winners in a bit, but first, an Oscar-related one. We've got five Blu-rays to give away for the five-time Oscar-nominated Promising Young Woman, which is available now on digital Blu-ray and DVD. Did get a Best Picture nod. Best Director for Emerald Fennell, Best Original Screenplay, also Fennell, and Best Actress, Carrie Mulligan. It's certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and you can see it now with exclusive bonus content taking you behind the scenes with the cast and the director for a chance to win one of those Blu-rays. Exclusive to our listeners, Josh, all you have to do is send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net, put Promising Young Woman in the subject line, and then in the body of the email, tell us, your favorite of this year's Best Picture nominees. That's all you have to do. Feedback at filmspotting.net, subject line, Promising Young Woman, and you will have a shot at winning one of those Promising Young Woman Blu-rays. 
All right, let's get to the five winners of the Pixie Digital Code giveaway. Again, Pixie is a new comedy action thriller starring Olivia Cook, Alec Baldwin, and Cole Meany. It's currently available on digital and on demand. A couple of weeks back, we asked you to send us your favorite revenge movie for a chance to win one of those digital codes. Bonus points if your revenge thriller included an organized gang of priests and nuns, which Pixie somehow does. Here are the winners. First up, Mitchell Bupre from Newark, Delaware. Mitchell wrote, For my favorite revenge film, I'm going to go with Kim Jae-woon's brutal and bloody South Korean masterpiece, I Saw the Devil, from 2011. With the always compelling Lee Byung-hun in the lead, along with Choi Min-sik, one of our greatest living actors, as the most vile screen villain of the past decade, this isn't a fun and cathartic revenge movie that lets you enjoy all of the stylish bloodletting. It's full of hopeless despair a descent into hell that captures the terrible emptiness that revenge results in. Sorry Mm. to disappoint you both, but there's no gangs of priests and nuns in this one. Just pure misery. A pair of winners here in Paul Nadeau in San Francisco. I'm going to say In the Bedroom is my favorite revenge thriller. Yes, I may have expanded the genre a bit. And Tom Morris from the Good, Bad, and the Nerdy Movie podcast says it has to be Payback, a Mel Gibson joint, as I recall, Josh. Our next winner is Jim Polini in Bethpage, New York. Jim says alpha male Max Cady has been honing his plan for revenge over many years and focused it on the lawyer who ensured his incarceration. By comparison, loner and introvert Travis Bickle raged against an existential threat that existed only in his mind, with targets as varied as New York City, Charles Palantine, Betsy, and Sport. Both films are excellent. However, Cape Fear's revenge plot feels more threatening because it targets a man and his family who lived unaware of the plot against them and are unprepared to defend themselves. Good stuff, Jim. Sam Oppenheim is our final winner. He says, The tribe, Nuff said, I wish I could write this email in sign language. P.S. And Josh, this would be a question for you because you saw the tribe. Aren't these schools run by priests and nuns who are criminals and organized? Or was it a secular school? (laughs) So good question, Sam. Um, This is the sign language refers to this is a a school for hearing impaired students. I want to say the problem is we don't see the adults very much. It's like these kids just running amok in this movie. Mm -hmm. I I don't think there were priests and nuns. I'm afraid not. Well, sorry, Sam, but you are still a winner. Congrats to all of you. And thanks to everyone who entered. Again, Pixie is currently available via digital on demand. We did want to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of an actor who appears in at least one, maybe two, film spotting Pantheon films. Those two movies are Alien and Midnight Run. Yes, Dennis Monroe Parker and Agent Alonzo Mosley, played by Yafet Kodo, passed away earlier this week. He was 81 years old, Josh. He was also known as, this is, I'm sure this is the first time I saw him on screen, as Bond villain Kananga, otherwise known as Mr. Big in 1973's Live and Let Die. He was also in 87's Running Man, yes. appeared in Paul Schrader's Blue Collar, and was a mainstay in 70s black exploitation films like Friday Foster, that one with Pam Greer, Truck Turner with Isaac Hayes. And we saw this one, Adam, as part of our marathon across 110th Street. Yafet Koto also appeared on TV in Homicide, Life on the Street. And Adam, I just saw him on screen about a week ago. Film spotting listener, Sarah Welch Larson. Mm-hmm. She's got a new book out, Becoming Alien, all about that series. And as a virtual book launch party, there was a 
watch party, basically. I was a part of commentary of the original Alien. And Kodo is just, you know, alongside Harry Dean Stanton as the grunts of the crew. Those two just so crucial in establishing. We spent a lot of time talking about how Alien is this real world depiction of outer space. Like this is what mm-hmm. it would probably be like this working crew just doing jobs that had to be done in outer space. And Kodo just brings that sort of every man grunt work, blue collar vibe to every, every scene he's in. He's so great an alien. You found this lane there. No blood, no Dallas, nothing. Now, was this virtual watch a little bit different than the one we did recently with our patrons where we looked at Top Gun and talked about it? I'm going to say it was a little more professional. No tooth off (laughs) poles. Oh, no. Did you pretty much just get out of the way, though, of Sarah Welch Larson since she literally wrote the book on the movie? Exactly. You know me well. I I threw her some like existential questions and then backed up. (laughs) Let her do all the heavy lifting. I love it. Michael Phillips did write a very nice tribute to Yafet Kodo in the Chicago Tribune called Remembering Yafet Kodo and the Screen Career Hollywood Didn't Accommodate. We will link to that in our show notes. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part one of their famous last world's pairing, Disney's new Raya and the Last Dragon in 1982's The Last Unicorn. We mentioned last week on the show that neither of us not only had seen it, But we weren't even sure we had heard of The Last Unicorn, and we got so many aghast emails, I think it was even more than the number of people who couldn't believe I ordered steak medium. Oh, let's let's not get into that again. Unless you want to reveal the results of that poll. I mean, mean, you know— we kind of have to, right? With me, should we finish the tease first for next picture show? Yes, I related next picture show. No, I have not seen Last Unicorn, but I do have next picture show news that you will love to hear. I finally saw A Matter of Life and Death, the Paul Pressburger film, Adam. And it's great. It was it was so great. I mean, just the sets and effects on that thing and the Technicolor. Yeah, mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. That's because I was pushed to do this by the Next Picture Show. A couple of episodes ago, they paired that with Soul. Brilliant pairing now that I've seen Matter of Life mm-hmm. and Death. And I knew this was my excuse to cross off that blind spot. So I did listen to that episode it's great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say an even better episode than the one on The Last Unicorn. I'm just going to go ahead okay. and say it. Look at you doing your cinephile homework. But yes, you you really can't in some ways fully appreciate Soul, I think, without A Matter of Life and Death. They are so wonderfully connected. The Next Picture Show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. More info at nextpictureshow.net. Okay, about the steak. Yes. We talked about it last week. It was, as you may imagine, completely not only unscripted, but unplanned. I was riffing. Here I was, Josh, thinking that I was actually, true story, thinking I was expressing my culinary enlightenment by suggesting that the steak had to be medium. But then you came over the top rope and said, no. Medium rare. It has to be medium rare. It has to be medium rare. I'm sorry if I I jump pounced on that. I just have rarely heard such nonsense. Okay. Truthfully, I just want to be clear about one thing. And you know what? If we want to just ignore this so that we can maintain <laughs> the dichotomy. T- this is Top Gun going coming all it's over top again. Gun isn't again. It? See, I knew you were gonna say that, but but honestly, I'm okay, not suggesting go on. go on. I'm not suggesting when you that- get a hold of a bone, Adam, you don't let go, do you? You know me well, Josh. We've done this show a long time together. Go on. But seriously. I'm not suggesting everybody should only eat medium steak. 
I'm saying it shouldn't be cooked more than medium. Yes, I do order it medium. And so if you want to belittle me for that, and it seems like listeners do because we put a poll on the main page of filmspotting.net <laughs> and we simply asked medium or medium rare and 77% of voters said medium rare. So I will take that, but I do just want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that medium rare is a bad choice. I'm just saying you can't go over medium. Okay, that's fine. I Okay. I, I think medium is a bad choice, but you know, that's, we, yeah. <laughs> hey, I'll take cook, it. Cooking is an art, Adam. It's not a science. That's so right. there, there's some room for opinion here. Okay. Well, what, what we try to do here on film spotting is definitely not science. And one way you can support the show is to join the film spotting family over on Patreon. A mere $5 a month gets you ad free episodes, early show downloads, a merch discount, monthly bonus episodes and you do get to participate in things like the occasional top gun virtual watch no we actually won't do top gun ever again i promise <laughs> we will also make available to you tickets to our monthly trivia spotting events these have become a true staple of film spotting going back to august and our next one our eighth one that coincides with film spotting madness best of the 80s is Trivia Spotting 1984? Yes, all the questions will be about the 80s. As people are hearing this, the show probably will have taken place because it is happening on Friday, March 19th. I can't wait, Josh. Now, how many questions do you think our quiz host, Thomas Todd, is going to have about 1982's The Last Unicorn? I feel like they're coming. I feel like there's <laughs> going to be at least one. one. At so least one, right? We might so, have to watch it now. Yeah, we might. Patreon.com slash filmspotting is where you can sign up. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is madness. But this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! Yes, it is madness time, Josh. We get down to the best eight films of the 1980s, according to film spotting listeners. Very quickly. For any newcomers, Film Spotting Madness, our seventh annual bracket-style tournament, 64 movies, only one survives. This year, it is best of the 1980s. Elite 8 voting is currently live at filmspotting.net slash madness, so you could have an impact on the matchups we are about to mention, depending on when you're listening. That voting closes Monday, March 22nd at 11 a.m. Central Time, filmspotting.net slash madness is where you vote. Let's see, Josh, how the Sweet 16 played out. We had Raging Bull over The Thing. Now, I'm just going to tell you, Raging Bull is a very high seed. Maybe, in fact, the highest seed in the tournament, as you would expect of such an acclaimed masterpiece. And it went up against John Carpenter's The Thing, and it was the closest Sweet 16 contest we had. 52% to 48%. Raging Bull did move on, but man, it was tight. Yeah, this has me nervous because personally, this was an easy vote for me to go Raging Bull, but prediction-wise, I'm wondering if Raging Bull is a little weaker than I might have thought yeah. at the beginning of this tournament. Absolutely. All right, our next matchup was, this is Spinal Tap <laughs> versus Amadeus, another yeah. very tight one here. This is Spinal Tap did take it, though, 53% to 47%. Yeah, I'm just so amused by listener Dustin Chabert, who says two words, shit pull. <laughs> just like shit sandwich, shit pull. Shit house. Shit house. There you go. The Elite Eight matchup then will be Raging Bull versus Spinal Tap. 
boxing gloves versus smell the glove. <laughs> Josh, who are you voting for? Who do you think is going to win? Again, fairly easy for me, Raging Bull. But oh, I'm, as yeah. I said, I'm I'm really nervous now. I I think my Spinal Tap run. I predicted. Let me look here. I predicted that it would run out after this. I hung with Spinal Tap in my prediction bracket, and I think this is where. I thought it might go down, but now I'm, I'm, boy, Yeah, I'm a little worried. I, I just got to say that. I'm a little worried. You should be. You should be based on the voting I've seen so far. It's pretty remarkable. It's a Cinderella run for This is Spinal Tap. Wow. I've said it. Maybe the funniest movie of all time, certainly in the conversation for me. So I do not begrudge it going this far, but I had it losing to E.T. And I couldn't believe that you accurately predicted that Spinal Tap would defeat E.T., but it did. And it may even move on as it faces Raging Bull here in the Elite Eight. And if it does, what's going to kill me is the logic that I used to go this far with it, I'm turning away from when I should have stuck with it. So so that's going to, uh, hmm. we'll see, we'll see. A little, we little will see. voting time to come yet. All right, the next matchup was Blade Runner versus Die Hard. Blade Runner took this one, 54% to 46%. We also had The Shining facing off against... The Terminator, 72% for 28%. So Jack Torrance taking down Arnold Schwarzenegger's T-1000, The Terminator, and it really wasn't even close. So The Shining advances, Blade Runner advances over Die Hard. I don't know if I got that one right, Josh. Which one do you pick? One of the best horror movies of all time or one of the best neo-noirs of all time. Yeah, sci-fi neo-noir too. So, mm -hmm. you know, for me, I the only way to split these two is to say, which one would I rather watch again? <laughs> and still, you know, having childhood scars from seeing The Shining way too young, I think I'll, I'd rather relive the Blade Runner experience. So that, that's, how, that's how I'm going to ju okay. justify my vote. I get that. I think I'm going with Kubrick. I think it's maybe... The more complete piece of cinema. And no, I don't know what that means. So let's move on. Okay. Raiders of the Lost Ark over James Cameron's Aliens. And this one was not close either. Aliens had a very good run, but went up against a buzzsaw in Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. 71% to 29%. Yeah, not not a big surprise there. I, I thought Raiders would have a pretty good run in the tournament. How about this one, though? Back to the Future against The Princess Bride. A little bit closer here. Back to the Future does take it 60% to 40%. Will Kreischke chimed in. I still don't know what Bonetti's defense is or why Tybalt cancels it out, but 20 years after the last time I saw this movie, I can still quote almost every single line. And I know I'm not alone. Princess Bride for the win. Did I did I get that right, Adam? I don't know that I can quote every single line from Princess Bride. I don't know if it I... Sounded Close enough. Okay, good. Okay. Chris Massa Minute Massa says, I can't decide between the two movies. I just can't. So I'll decide between their songs. And in my opinion, wait a second. He doesn't mean this. In my opinion, Huey Lewis and the Power of Love narrowly beats out Mark Knopfler and Storybook Love. So that's super cheesy 80s pop rock song that don't get me wrong. I loved when I was that age beats out the song I danced to at my wedding with Sarah. Oh, no, Chris, no, Chris, it doesn't. 
Wait a minute. Which is the super cheesy 80s rock song? You're going to have to be more specific. How dare you? When was the last time you listened to Storybook Love? I can't even hear it in my head right now. I'm sorry. (sighs) My love is like a storybook story. But it's as real as the feelings I feel. Okay, well, I hope Sam cues it up here, Josh. Raiders of the Lost Ark then does face (laughs) off against Back to the Future. The buddies, filmmaking buddies, Robert Zemeckis up against Steven Spielberg. You love both of these films, Mm. and I know it pains you to pick against Back to the Future probably for the first time in this tournament, but you are, right? In terms of my personal choice? Yes. No, Adam, I'm not. Wait, Uh, wait, 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 what? I'm not. Did you, what, <laughs> what was the phrase you used about the more complete cinematic vision? Was that but something like that? But you would like be that? dead wrong about that too. <laughs> no. The cinematic craft, perhaps, for Raiders, the cinematic craft. Back to the Future has a vision to it. There are there are ideas there. There are oh. um, things to dig into about growing older, about your relationship with your parents. Uh-huh. Um, it's a really, really rich film. It's also, now I'm making this sound like this was an easy choice. It wasn't. This is all justification for me betraying you know, one childhood favorite in favor of another. But I do think Back to the Future is, it is probably one of the great pop art achievements of the 80s. Raiders, you could say that except how heavily it relies on previous eras of pop art, which again, I don't think should be held against it. But if Mm. you're looking for a way you're going to, if you're going to, if you're looking for a way to compare the two (laughs) back to the future is the more unique vision. I'll I'll just put it that way. Wow. So the irony here that may not be lost on some of our longtime listeners is that you're the guy who dressed up as Indiana Jones for Halloween. I know. I'm the guy who pretended to be Marty McFly (laughs) in multiple lip sync contests, and yet I'm voting for Raiders and you're voting for Back to the Future. Well, we're just a a confused pair of older men, Adam. Yeah, we've outgrown those childish things, apparently. Maybe. Okay, well, we will see how this one shapes up, Raiders of the Lost Ark versus Back to the Future. That brings us to our next set, the final set of Sweet 16 results. Do the right thing over Ghostbusters. And it was about as close as you'd probably expect. And as much as I love Ghostbusters, as close as it should be, 75% for do the right thing over Ghostbusters 25. Yeah, that makes sense. I like seeing that. You know, so, so fan of Ghostbusters. So this doesn't really hurt me at all. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make you read these results just for that Raiders of the Lost Ark <sighs> blasphemy. You know, I would feel better if this, this matchup had resulted in a closer fight. The Empire Strikes Back really handily takes down my neighbor Totoro. It it should not be 75% to 25% because Mm -hmm. as I expressed on last show, these two films are so close together in in meaning and vision and, and quality. I did end up going with Empire and the rest of the voters though. Chris Moody, he wrote in to say, my bracket says Empire, but my head and heart and every fiber of me says Totoro, not just for this film, but for everything Ghibli, for Grave of the Fireflies, which ripped my heart out like no other film ever has, for my 15-year-old who on bad days when homeschooling and not seeing her friends and the crappiness of being 15 gets too much, will always retreat to Ghibli for solace, comfort, inspiration, and joy. And most often it's Totoro, May, and the cat bus. Aaron Newworth says, Chewbacca is like a more useful Totoro, right? And I mean, he's got a point. If you're in a shootout, <laughs> oh no. If you're in a shootout with stormtroopers, or I don't know, you need to make the jump to light speed, 
Totoro is not going to do much for you. I, I mean, Totoro can pretty much do anything. He's magical, Adam. So <laughs> look at what this has done. This is now making I me know. pit Chewbacca against right. Totoro. Aaron, why did you have to bring that into it? Did you also dress up as Chewbacca as a kid or no? Um, I don't. Too busy being Han Solo? I don't. Yeah. I mean, Han, you know, there are a lot of layers to Han. That's a lot of responsibility and work. I think I had to just commit to that. Okay. Do the right thing then. Does face off with the Empire Strikes Back. Josh, what say you? Well, this one's easy because, you know, since when did we first do the Sight and Sound Top 10 of all time? 2012, I think, on the show. I think it was 2012. Yeah. Do the right thing. On my list. So that, you know, logically, I'm going to have to vote for it over Empire. Yeah, it's my vote, too. And like every kid of the 80s, I grew up adoring Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back. But whatever we were saying before about greater cinematic achievements, do the right thing has to be in the conversation, certainly among the best films of the 1980s. And that's where I'm going. But we will see what listeners say. Filmspotting.net slash madness is where you vote. We do have a correction. Last week, we said that Rob Reiner was the only director with two films in the Sweet 16. And Mark, over on our Patreon page, pointed out that there was another. James Cameron also had two. The Terminator and Aliens, alas, both of those movies have now been eliminated. As we said, Reiner, of course, still has Spinal Tap, the Cinderella, in the mix. So we now have, Josh, eight films remaining eight directors, and a diverse pool of genres, too. A horror movie in The Shining, a comedy in Spinal Tap, a documentary or mockumentary, too, in Spinal Tap, an action-adventure film in Raiders, that sci-fi neo-noir in Blade Runner, a space opera, if you will, in The Empire Strikes Back, whatever you want to classify Back to the Future as, Josh, and arguably the two best films from two of the best directors of the last half century, Spike Lee, Do the Right Thing, and Martin Scorsese, Raging Bull. I think we did okay. Yeah, that, that's a that's a nice selection. And I wonder if those last two you mentioned, if that's what it's going to come down to. If we're going to, you know, start to get serious here, start to get rid of the genre, start to get rid of the comedy mm-hmm. and narrow it down to those two. We'll see in a few weeks. Well, you say that, but I don't think you predicted the Do the Right Thing would face off against Raging Bull in the Madness Championship. And neither did I. Okay. Yeah. Just going on going on my gut now. Okay. Going on my regret now, maybe I should say. (laughs) Let's see where your gut was when we started the bracket challenge. We had over 800 listeners submit brackets, try to predict how this would all play out. Our leader after two rounds was Chris Searles from Atlanta, and he sent us a really nice note. He said, I've been listening for a few years now and have always enjoyed Film Spotting Madness. A colleague of mine and I actually sit down every year with our own brackets and argue for hours about which film deserves to win. Do you know how much that warms my heart and Sam's, Josh? Like, we might have to include Chris and his friend in our selection, preparation selection for committee. the next one. Yeah. 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 We might, we might curse them by allowing them to be part of that. Also, he says, I want to thank Adam, Josh, and Sam for considering Diner. The movie was made about my grandfather's restaurant in Baltimore, and it's always nice to see respect put on its name. How about that? Chris did drop to 12th after the Sweet 16 round. Not bad. But he did have the thing and Amadeus reaching the Elite Eight. Our new leader, Identity Unknown at this point, has titled their bracket, That's the Ark, yeah? Never open. Don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Good <laughs> advice. They had a perfect Sweet 16, a perfect round two before that, and only three incorrect picks in round one. After looking at their final four, this unknown listener has a pretty good chance of taking the whole tourney. They've got Raiders, The Shining, do the right thing and 
Yes, they called Spinal Tap. It's not over mm. yet. Do not get me wrong, but they are calling Spinal Tap over Scorsese's Raging Bull. It could happen, Josh. I, I mean, at this point, I, I'm thinking it might, and I'm just kicking myself for not sticking with it longer. Hmm. We do have our normal bracket contest that takes place between myself, you, Sam, and Madness Godfather Mike Merrigan. Now, what does that mean? It was a listener, Mike Merrigan, like all the best ideas over the history of film spotting. It came from a listener. It came from him. He said, you should do a bracket-style tournament. And we said, okay. And who knew that we would spend this many hours later every year devoted to the tournament. But Josh, you have historically done pretty poorly in film spotting madness. That is not the case this year. Last week, you moved into first in our contest and you were fourth overall. I mean, that was infuriating enough. Among all listeners, everyone who submitted brackets. 800 people, fourth. Okay. Okay, this is uncharted territory for you. Yes, I'm confused already. This week... You remain in first place among the four of us. You had a perfect sweet 16, but you are now in second place. Look at me. In the tournament. Second overall. I can't I cannot believe this is happening. I I've worked hard for this, Adam. I've put in years. I've put in training. I, I want to thank everyone who's uh, brought me to this point. And can I go higher? Can it get better? What do you think? <laughs> uh I don't think so. No, I don't, because I'm going to predict that the movie you have winning at all is not going to win at all. I think mm. I think you're going to fall from grace. Oh, I boy. do. That's just my sense. OK, I'm well. sorry to be a realist, but that is what keeps me going and lets me <laughs> sleep at night is that your miracle run may be about to end. Now, last week, our producer Sam fell to second in our contest and he's fallen to third because he somehow thought that Totoro would actually beat The Empire Strikes Hmm. Back. What did that do to him? He's now 71st. I then jumped up to second place in our contest, 31st overall. Not bad. Not second, but not bad. Mike Merrigan, his stock has not improved. His projected winner, Raising Arizona, got knocked out last round. Another of his final four aliens went down this week. Hmm. That puts him in 313th place. Ouch. Yeah, that's, uh, sorry about that, Mike. (laughs) So we encourage you to vote, which you can do now. The Elite Eight is live. Film Spotting Madness at filmspotting.net slash madness. The voting again closes Monday, March 22nd at 11 a.m. Central Time. And just an hour after that, around noon, the final four voting will commence. Members of the Film Spotting family over on Patreon get a first shot at those polls. Then our subscribers to the Film Spotting newsletter. More info at patreon.com slash filmspotting and at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. I shall never forget the weekend Laura died. A silver sun burned through the sky like a huge magnifying glass. It was the hottest Sunday in my recollection. I felt as if I were the only human being left in New York. For with Laura's horrible death, I was alone. I, Waldo Lidecker, was the only one who really knew her.
some of the opening narration there from 1944's Laura. It's the next film in our 40s noir marathon. That's Clifton Webb's Waldo Lidecker, one of the suspects in the shotgun murder of the titular Laura, played in flashbacks by Gene Tierney. Other suspects include Laura's aunt, played by Judith Anderson. Anderson, of course, very memorable as Mrs. Danvers in Hitchcock's Rebecca, a movie that came to mind more than once while I watched Laura, not just because of Anderson. Also, Another suspect, Laura's fiance, Shelby Carpenter, played by an almost unrecognizable Vincent Price, except for almost. that voice. You wouldn't <laughs> miss that voice anywhere. Dana Andrews plays Mark McPherson, the police detective who's assigned to the case. Laura was directed by Otto Preminger, a director who may deserve his own marathon one of these days. He made Anatomy of a Murder, The Man with the Golden Arm, Angel Face, and others. Adam, the only one that I've seen of those is The Man with the Golden Arm. Very good Frank Sinatra performance in an mm-hmm. equally lurid movie, I think I'd say. As Laura, how about you? Have you seen any of those? I think The Man with the Golden Arm is also one I've seen, and that would be the only one. Our listeners are still in shock that neither of us have seen Anatomy of a Murder. That one has come up before. A real blind spot for us, one we should remedy sometime soon. And I'll just say, too, looking this up, he made some earlier movies, I think kind of B-movies that he disowned. Laura, actually, Preminger's debut as a Hollywood director, as I okay. understand it. There you go. And yeah, so I think a Preminger marathon is is due one of these days for now. We're at the third film in our 40s noir marathon. The other two we've talked about, William Wyler's The Letter and Frank Tuttle's This Gun for Hire. Both of those opened with a murder. There was no mystery about who committed it. Here, the murder has already taken place. We just don't know by whom. And surface question here to start, Adam. Mm -hmm. Did you figure it out? Did you know before the movie revealed it (laughs) who the killer was? Which we're probably going to spoil, we should say. For people yeah. who haven't if you seen, haven't Laura. seen Laura, we're definitely going to spoil it, and I'm going to do it right now. It's very easy to assume that the character who is the most diabolical, the one you hate the most, no matter what airs he puts on, the airs of sophistication and how lovingly and glowingly he speaks of Laura, he seems like the guy who probably did it, right? I mean, it's not hard to believe that Clifton Webb's Waldo Lidecker is guilty of the murder, even though as you go through the film, and this is the case of any good, complex film noir, certainly, you start to question who it really could be, and you talk yourself into different people. That's kind of by design. I certainly thought that there was a good chance he was the guy. What about you, Josh? You know, and I'm not good at these things. I've mentioned before, I usually don't try to figure movies out ahead of time, even murder Mm -hmm. mysteries. For some reason, I get immersed in the atmosphere. Obviously, I thought there was a good chance, but he really did fool me when he fainted upon seeing Tierney reappear. But then I thought afterwards, he still would have fainted because as far as he knew at that point, like it it was a genuine faint, right? That's right. So that kind of fooled me for a little bit. And I got to say, I'm expecting we might differ a little bit on Tierney's performance here, but I thought one thing she did bring to the role, I, I thought she was quite good in a really difficult part, is that I believed she could have done it. Like pretty close until they kind of set her aside for more romantic reasons where you start to realize, okay, this screenplay is not really going to have it be her. But I thought it could have been her longer than, than probably most people, I would say. Yeah, no, I definitely felt that as well. And maybe we should go ahead and talk about Tyranny's performance because we go a long time before we actually meet Laura. And as you suggested in the setup, 
She's dead at the beginning of this film. We see her a lot, but we see her only in a painting, a portrait that really does loom over the entire story and all of the characters. I mean, Preminger makes it a focal point of almost every shot that takes place within her apartment or whatever her home is. And that's one of the things that did, I'll just digress for a second, strike me as a little bit odd with Laura as a film noir. I always think about the sense of place being so important. The city, usually those urban landscapes, and we definitely saw it with this gun for hire. And this is a movie where maybe you could say that painting and that space becomes a little bit of a character. But otherwise, other than the high society stuff, is this New York? What city is it? Where is any of this taking place? It all seems a little nondescript. And actually, Ebert had a great line in his review of this movie, which he loves. He gave it four stars, but he said the movie basically consists of well-dressed rich people standing in luxury flats and talking to a cop. And that's not inaccurate. That That is what Laura is. There's a fair amount of rain, though, right? It, there is, is a decent amount of yeah, rain. Yeah, I think it yeah. tries to squeeze some atmospherics out of that. Yeah, it definitely does. But we don't meet Laura. We don't see her in flashbacks for a long time. So we're conjuring our image of her, how she must move, how she must talk, what she's actually like. We're hearing every character talk about her as they're trying to figure out what happened to her and they're all reflecting on what she meant to them. And even as we meet her, it's flashbacks that are told by a narrator. It's Lidecker's version of her. So we're never really getting an objective view of her. And that image, the actual image, as I said, that looms over everyone, not only do we have that, but it is just an image, a representation. The movie also uses a lot of mirrors. So it's always suggesting is what we're seeing real or some kind of reflection. And that's there. It's present, but it's caught up in a pretty ludicrous plot. I mean, we could we could really dissect this screenplay and tear it down, but I was enjoying it until where I think it really finally gets interesting, really interesting, and here, yes, the spoilers, Laura appears alive. Because in this genre where we don't always see women portrayed, let's say, multidimensionally, this film then, when she comes back, really becomes, for me, Josh, an indictment of male perception, of male obsession, of exploitation. Shelby, Waldo, Mark, they're all guilty of it. They're all guilty of idealizing her and using her in different ways. And to an extent, we as viewers are kind of complicit in that too, because we've conjured our own images of her. And to your point, we get to a moment in the movie where we start to doubt how we feel about her. And you wonder, are they suckers? Are we being suckers? Is she playing all of these men? Is she guilty? Is she playing us. And I think for a noir like this, a detective noir like this, to have that revelation be not a plot revelation so much as a character one, be kind of Laura's awakening to the extent Mm -hmm. to which she doesn't need these men anymore, doesn't need to be controlled by them, that that really surprised me in a nice way. Yeah, I think that element is definitely there. This is a shockingly independent woman um, for the time and place that the movie is setting, right? She has this lavish apartment of her own. She has her own career. She has She's juggling multiple men. I mean, I think this is based, I haven't read it, but this is based on a novel by Vera Kaspari. And I just, I have to think 
there's a very lurid version of this that, that is much more explicit because Laura has all if the one thing you could maybe accuse her of is bad taste in men like that. She's yes. she's surrounding herself with these obsessive or obsessives in the case of Waldo or manipulators in the case of Shelby. And then what is the relationship with McPherson? Now you could say, does it backtrack on a little bit of what you're talking about in the ending where he kind of comes to to rescue her and it's been building up this portrait of a woman who is completely independent. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of trying to have both sides yes, here a little bit, but I do think, you know, going back to Tierney's performance and the why, the reason I said it's so hard and the reason I referenced Rebecca, it, it wasn't only Judith Anderson, but Laura has this ghostly presence, the character of Laura, mm-hmm. over the first third of this film, you know, just like the title character in Hitchcock's Rebecca, who we never see. And that portrait does so much work. It just, it just and the way it, um, again, the framing of it, as you described, Preminger always has it hovering over someone's sh- shoulder, mostly McPherson's, as he becomes himself mm-hmm. infatuated with her, that we're building up this, this idea of what could she be like? How could she live up to this? And I think Tierney does well enough. I think she brings the ghost to life, puts flesh on that portrait as well as she can in Mm -hmm. this scenario. And I think one of the keys is that she does remain a bit coy and she plays her, her cards the way she had previously in her life as this independent woman. And, And I think that also allows her to become a suspect. And maybe, as you said, that's on us, that we start to suspect her of being nefarious as well. So uh, I think it's a really tricky part that Tierney does does her best with and ultimately makes work for the film, as crazy as the plot does get. Yeah, I I think we're both getting at it's a lot to deliver on. There's a lot of expectations surrounding Laura, and then she has to come on screen and embody that and embody that kind of complexity. And there is an elegance to her. There's an intelligence There's a sweetness, but that sweetness could converge with naivete, but we don't get that from this performance and the character. There's enough depth to it. There's enough guile, just enough guile to believe there's more to her than what we are being told about her, which then allows us to also believe, well, then maybe she's also a bad person. We need just that little bit of a doubt. And so I think that that's a credit ultimately to Tierney's performance in addition to the screenplay. Now, Let's go ahead and compare it to the last noir we watched and the last hard-nosed kind of brutish male character we saw, Alan Ladd's Raven. I think we both ultimately liked that performance quite a bit. And here we have Dana Andrews doing kind of his version of that, where he's definitely playing tough. He's definitely playing, except when he's questioning witnesses, a little bit of the silent type There's a technique that he uses that I don't know whether it was in the screenplay or Andrew's own invention that I kind of like where he doesn't look at anybody when he asks them questions, right? He just reads from his notebook, even though he's not really reading from it. And I like that touch because it suggests that he's someone who's asking questions, even though he already knows the answer one. So he doesn't really have to pay attention to what they're saying. But also I tied it back a little bit, Josh, to this whole notion of perception that really drives the movie. It's as if he doesn't want to look at their faces because 
he doesn't want to be swayed in any way by how they're saying what they're saying. He's just listening. Yeah, it's well, Waldo says to him at one point, look at my face. And what yeah. I like about it is he's essentially saying, I'll take the clues I want to take that I yep. know are valuable. I'm not going to look at your face, which I know is probably lying to me anyway. Yes. <laughs> and he communicates all this by just like looking down and not never making eye contact. So, yeah, he, you know, Dana Andrews, let's just know Alan Ladd in my book. No. I, he doesn't have the elegance of Ladd as Raven. Um, but I think he's good here. He's, he's really good um, in William Wyler's The Best Years of our lives as one of the three returning World War II servicemen. And this is a very different performance, but I like that reticence he shows uh, that you described. And I like the, and here's maybe where it differs from Raven, who has that elegance. There's a class element at play in this character. How many insults does McPherson have to let slide off his back from these high society folks? They just drop little asides, Waldo mostly, but others too, about he's this working stiff, basically, Mm -hmm. who's intruded upon their world. How about that remarkable scene at the dinner party where he basically lines them up and is about to announce who he thinks the killer is, and they all turn on him. Instead of like trying to find out who actually committed murder, they form this class circle against the working class detective. And so he's constantly dealing with this. And I like that element of it. And I think he Mm -hmm. does pull off a really difficult scene where McPherson comes under the spell of Laura. This is before she's appeared late night at her apartment, looking for clues, starts drinking here where I believe he's turned down drinks before. And that portrait kind of mixes with the, he smells her perfume on her nightstand, um, looks through some of her mail, and all of a sudden you can see, I think the score by David Raxon shifts from this dramatic score to something that's actually romantic, and you can just see that McPherson is falling under this spell. And of course Mm -hmm. he falls asleep, and that's when she appears. And and you don't know a moment for a minute. Is this a vision of his? Is this a dream or is this reality? Right. And and I think crucial scene for the movie to make that shift. And I think Andrews pulls it off. Yeah, I think he does. Overall, I like the performance, but accurate to say he's no Alan Ladd. There is something to me that felt like it was missing in terms of just a little bit of, I don't know, smolder, Josh, the sense that there's yes. something else, something else going on behind those eyes that I don't think Andrews fully conveys. He's he's a little sleepy, I think, in this movie, <laughs> maybe for me. You know what else is missing? You know, even I said Lad and Lake were electric together. That's where yeah. she came alive for me. I don't think you ever get that from Tierney and Andrews, even though the movie wants that sort of um, connection to be there. Yeah, you mentioned the Raxon score, the very good. Joseph Lachelle, the cinematographer, actually won the Oscar in 1945 for Laura. And I was a little bit surprised by it in that as a noir, this is a film that really doesn't rely on the stark lighting that we're used to at all the high contrast type of approach, you do get it at the end. And I really think that's where you get some of the best work. And I'm just going to focus on the use of shadows here. Again, what you associate with noir for the most part isn't really an aspect that's emphasized in this film at all. And then we get Lidecker leaving Laura's place and heading down the stairs before deciding that he's going to turn back, he's going to wait, and, well, he's going to have to do this deed a second time, and this time actually get it right and kill Laura. And it's in that moment, when he pauses on the stairs, that we get this second Lidecker emerge behind him in that shadow. And it seems so perfect, not only for noir, but it's almost like there truly are two Waldo Lideckers 
It's a split personality almost where he genuinely loves her and wants her to be happy, but he wants her to be happy only on his terms. And we see the other Lidecker come out, the one who's capable of killing her for a second time. It's really ominous in that moment. Yeah, and it's a it's a very frightening portrayal of of an abusive relationship, essentially. I mean, this yeah. movie gets pretty graphic and gritty for for something from this era. And as far as the filmmaking goes, after that moment you're talking about, we get some some really dynamic stuff like the final shot itself where there's this swish pan from Waldo, from Lidecker, mm-hmm. who has just been shot by the police. So we swish pan from him, his face, to Laura and McPherson, uh, who are together. And then we get this camera push behind them into a grandfather clock that's been kind of like this symbolic piece throughout the movie. And of course, it's been damaged from a bullet yeah. itself in the gunfire exchange. So that is a lot of the filmmaking here is reserved. I think you would say not maybe as expressionist as you were getting at from other noirs we get. And then it kind of really comes alive in this climactic scene. Yeah. It just hit me that we were talking a little bit earlier about film spotting madness, best of the eighties and Blade Runner. The scene where McPherson at the very beginning goes to meet Lidecker as he's taking a bath. It almost reminds me a little bit of Harrison Ford, <laughs> oh. right? Going to meet the boss of the corporation in Blade Runner. Well, I was going to say, Adam, I don't know if you know this about me, but I too, whenever I write, I'm in yeah. a giant tub with an old fashioned typewriter <laughs> that just swings over the top of the swings tub. Over. And, yeah. It's how you get your best writing done. I'm telling you. <laughs> it's such a bizarre moment, that opening and the way McPherson even turns back to look at him. Ebert, touches on this in the yes. review, what what Preminger might have been suggesting, but you're going, okay, he's off camera asking for his robe. Is he, is he really just, he's naked there in front of this detective, doesn't care. And then McPherson even looks back at him yeah. and kind of gives him a, a grin. Yeah. There's a case where he does look. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think the Clifton Webb performance as Lidecker is is pretty fun and definitely one of the strengths of the film, one of the reasons to watch the film. But I like Vincent Price, too. I can't think of another Vincent Price movie I've seen, Josh. I can't, but I'll at least give him this credit that he's playing someone who's portrayed as like a country bumpkin, but he's managed to get along in high society and he's rakish and he's charming. And there's there's kind of a a naivete to him that we don't get with Laura, which would suggest innocence. And yet you always believe that he might be capable as well of something a little bit darker. It's it's a difficult performance. I think he navigates it pretty well. Yeah, I just didn't know what to do with him because of all the baggage. You know, you're just the voice alone. And then, you know, knowing him from something like House of Wax, there's a great description. Waldo actually says to him at one point, you're a vague sort of fellow, aren't you, Carpenter? Yeah. And I think that's it, right? That's the character and that's, that's, that's it. Price too. So um, yeah. definitely a, a nice element to add into this mix. Yeah. Laura is currently available to rent on demand on most platforms, or you can get it possibly at your local library. Next up in our 40s noir marathon is the low budget detour, which is currently playing over on the Criterion channel. More about this marathon and previous marathons at filmspotting.net slash marathons. And Josh, the show is over. Indeed it is. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And that's where you can vote in the Elite Eight round of Film Spotting Madness Best of the 80s. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at Filmspotting.net slash newsletter. 
out on digital this weekend. Finally, Josh, finally, the wait is over. You can see Zack Snyder's Justice League on HBO Max. Oh, never mind about those Oscar-nominated films, Adam. That's right. I'm just going to watch this. And I did see this quote over the weekend. I know film Twitter had a lot of fun with it, but just in case Zack Snyder thought maybe us snobs at Film Spotting and our listeners wouldn't be interested in Zack Snyder's Justice League, he pointed out that it uses the same aspect ratio as First Cow. I'm sure that that film, Kelly Reichert's masterpiece from last year and Justice League have a lot in common beyond that, but they definitely have the same aspect ratio. Wait, this is a real thing. This isn't a gag. It's actually a real thing. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Now you want to see it admitted out in limited release. The Courier, Benedict Cumberbatch stars as a Cold War spy trying to put an end to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Great cast along with The Batch, Rachel Brosnahan, and Jesse Buckley. Next week, we will get to our Oscars homework. I think Pieces of a Woman playing on Netflix, The U.S. versus Billie Holiday on Hulu. We're going to catch up with those two, earning Oscar nominations for Best Actress for its two stars. We may see if we can fit in a couple others as well. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.